0: Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Today I will be reading scripture from Galatians 6, 1-10. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, The one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man who reaps what he sows, whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, we have an opportunity. Let us do good to all the people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is God's Word.
1: It's really good to be with you. Um, I, uh, I love getting the opportunity to visit with other churches, and it's actually very fitting for what we're talking about this morning. Um, I, I'm particularly excited about this subject and this series that you've been working through. First of all, I think it's very bold. For a church to be explicitly talking about sex and relationships and friendships and things like that. Uh, but this is particularly near and dear to my heart because as I think back on parts of my life, parts of my Christian walk, um, parts of my church community life, um, I've experienced a great deal of brokenness and, and pain and hurt. And so we're actually going to talk a little bit about that. Ultimately, our big idea um, is that friendship is, is too weak of a concept um, and so I appreciate that we're talking about love and sex and friendship. But as we come into the New Testament, as we see what the Lord has for us, uh, we're going to see that friendship is actually too weak. It's actually more like family. And I, wanna, I want us to discover together that things like authentic, real, genuine community are actually possible. It might seem very complicated and difficult, but those things are actually attainable. Really, um, the way that the church is represents to the world what God is like. Um, And so we can phrase that by thinking, the way that we as a community function, the way that we look, shows the world what God is like. And that might be a bit of a scary thought. Uh, We have to be honest with ourselves, right? And so uh, even choosing to write that is a little bit tricky, but in all reality, this is a part of my story. So my parents were uh, raised with Roman Catholic roots, um, but in their early 20s, they came to see a more clear, more beautiful, more real picture of who Jesus is, and they trusted him fully with their lives, and as a result, my siblings and I were raised going to church. Um, I loved that church. I really, really loved that church. As I think back on my childhood, some of my most vivid memories took place in the walls of that building. Now my understanding of a church being more than just uh, inside of walls is, is, is grown, of course, but, but when I think back, we were there multiple times a week. My dad was on the board, and he was an usher, and so I'd go down with him on Tuesdays. He would count the offerings, or for board meetings, I'd hang out in the gym and play with my buddies. It was actually awesome when I came in this morning. There were a couple of kids that uh, were playing out there. They didn't have any coins, it seemed like, but they were still trying to figure out how to play with all the arcade games. And that's kind of the deal for me. We were there on Friday nights for our family night, kids, youth, adult ministries. And then Sundays, we'd be there in the morning and then we'd go home for a power nap and then shoot back in the evening. And so as I think back, so much of my childhood memories took place In that church building. I I was taught the things of Jesus. I was taught uh, uh, the story of Scripture. I was was asked if I wanted to invite him into my heart. Very frequently was our tradition. I was asked that and every time I I was asked I I was like well I thought like when I did the first time he would stick around for a while so I kind of doubted myself and then I said but if you know I'll do it again sure. As I grew up uh, I was around 12 years old or so um, that was around the time I was making a decision to be baptized and I remember asking uh, Jesus for forgiveness And within my understanding of that, I felt as if I was forgiven of of, of things. And and as a 12-year-old, my understanding of sin and and those things that separated me from God were were small, but I still felt like I had been forgiven of that. And so I was baptized at around 12 years old with every other 12-year-old boy in our church. Seemed to be the way that things went in our church culture. Um, And for a couple of years, was heavily involved in serving uh, in our kids' ministry alongside my mom. And then I was a youth volunteer. And then we entered into uh, a building project Um, There was going to be a decision to move from where our church was to another location. And my dad was in the mix of this, and I was still young, so I didn't really have an understanding of all that was going on. But what I do know is that uh, vision and ideas got incredibly personal, and church politics really got in the middle uh, of our lives. And I still don't completely understand the fullness of that. My dad uh, probably will tell me that when I'm older, maybe. Um, The reality of the pain that happened there. But I do remember one occasion on a Sunday... After service, I'm standing around with my buddies and one of our pastors uh, comes over and he greets a friend, then greets another friend, passes over me, greets another friend and greets another friend and greets another friend and continues down the line. And, and I was old enough at that time to recognize that that was not the way things were supposed to be happening. Um, and I remember thinking very clearly that if this is the guy who talks to me about what God is supposed to be like, if he's the one week after week that's trying to show me a picture of who Jesus is and what God is like and what his love is, Uh, and he's rejecting me, then I guess that must mean that God loves that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy, but he rejects me. That was the feeling I had. And I now serve in a church, and I've been doing that for many years, and I still on a regular basis have this feeling, this sensation of, you know, am I demonstrating something that is opposite to what God is or to who God is? Even the other week, or just earlier this week rather, I was scrolling through Facebook, and I came across this A.W. Tozer quote, and it said, If being hurt by the church causes you to lose faith in God, then your faith was in people, not God. Now, I don't know the context within which uh, Tozer said this. I'm not really sure what point he was trying to make, but it would seem to me very clearly, actually, that the person who posted this on Facebook was taking big shots at people who've walked away from the church. And I remember thinking, even earlier this week, and I'm obviously preparing for this, and just how real an issue this is. Maybe we can't get a true picture of what God is like because we don't encounter Christians who act like God is. And that that thought goes through my mind all of the time. Even as I'm preaching, as I'm leading announcements, as I'm walking through the hallways, as I'm out at Tim Hortons, as I'm greeting people in my community, maybe they won't ever get a a true picture of what God is like unless I'm able to represent Him well. And that, again, that can totally freak us out because if we're real, and I'm going to get into this whole authenticity piece in a minute, um, the truth is... I, I, I'm, I'm pretty rough sometimes and, and I don't always do exactly what I know I'm commanded and, and told to do and not even just that, what by the Spirit of God I'm enabled to do. I don't actually do those things all the time. So is God actually trusting us in, to, to present him and all that? Well, yeah, we kind of work together, but we know uh, that there's uni- uh, that in our diversity and in our, in our, in our, in our struggles and our common challenges that as we keep pursuing Jesus, the world is going to see something that's beautiful, a group of people coming together. And so I uh, eventually, there's a whole bunch of years where I was away from the church and I got pretty heavily involved in the thrash metal uh, scene, heavy metal culture. You probably don't know what that is. I would encourage you not to Google it. And um, that really took me away from anything Christian. And I remember having an idea that there's got to be a God. There's way too much happening in this universe for there not to be a God. But I wasn't sure about how Jesus worked and what his relationship was to me. Later on, in my late teenage years, I was at a concert, just uh, viewing a concert, not not playing, and um, there was a band from Germany, and spoken in very broken English, came out on platform and essentially entered into this uh, anti-Gospel, anti-Christian rant. Who are the Christians? We must destroy the Christians. We must kill the Christians. Really strong language. And there's 1,500 people in this crowd at the Opera House on Queen Street. And they're chanting along and they're excited along. And I remember thinking to myself, you can't talk about me that way. You can't talk about my people that way. And in that moment, all this sensation, it's like God says, is he? You've walked away from this. Is he actually talking about you? And that, I mean, as you could probably imagine, threw me for a loop. I was completely confused and completely disoriented, and I had typically been that way because of chemicals I had allowed to go into my system, but this was different. This was different. This was, this was something so much bigger than, than me. And so eventually I walked away from that band, and there was a lot of, you know, had to pay back money, and there was a lot of consequences for that. Um, and I had loosely been affiliated with a church over the years where I'd gone to play basketball and ball hockey, a drop-in center and, I went there to play basketball one night, and there was this fellow, and he took note that I had come back, and he said, hey, do you want to go grab coffee? And, and I said, sure. And then for the next year or so, we basically met on a weekly, biweekly basis, and he would ask me questions about where I'm at in my life. He actually took a genuine care in me. He showed me this personal, relatable Jesus. That it wasn't just somebody out there, that God is out there, but actually, no, we can sit across the table. And that was my first experience to real, authentic, intentional discipleship. And within a year, I was volunteering at that youth center. Within a year, I was uh, speaking. And then a little bit after that, I was running that youth center. And for the last 11 years, I've been doing uh, youth ministry. And that's not the trajectory I thought my, my life was on, but that's where God has put me. And, and even as I started at People's five years ago, when I arrived there, I came to understand very quickly that there were some messy broken bits of uh, some broken parts of our past in student ministry at our church, and I would meet with students and their families, and very quickly they would say that, hey, I don't know if you know everything that happened, but our family was pretty hurt by this, and it's going to take us a while to build trust in you. And like, man, talk about a welcome. I was actually thankful for it, because at least I knew where I I stood. And so maybe like me, uh, or like these young people and families in my church, it's possible that you have been hurt by the church. It's possible that you've confided in a small group leader and, and then, you know, and, you know, through the prayer chain, uh, information traveled that wasn't actually supposed to be known by anybody, right? It's possible that, that uh, somebody in the church who you thought loved you and cared for you walks by you sometimes. And that, that, that hurts, you know? And there's no such thing as, I mean, there's major big offenses and then there's minor offenses, but pain is pain, it's pain. Right? And we can't just say, get over it, right? I, I know as a, as a pastor that I've hurt members of my congregation, the people that God has entrusted to me to care for, to shepherd, to lead. I know that I've hurt them with a, with a, with a silly joke or some sarcasm or, uh, you know, Lord forbid it would ever be intentional, but I'm sure that's how it's been interpreted. And I have to be mindful of that. Maybe Vijay's hurt some of you guys. He said earlier, he's not sure if you guys have been quiet about being his enemy. He'd probably appreciate it if you were just straight up and told him that, right? And so the question we have to ask is, what does... Authentic, uh, authentic Christian community actually look like? It's risky. I could get hurt. Maybe maybe you're somebody who's hurt others unintentionally, maybe intentionally, right? And so there's a brokenness that, ha- that exists in Christian community that doesn't help us display what God really looks like. And so for us to understand this, we're going to do a little bit of work and we're going to dig into the book of Galatians a little bit. And so thank you to our friend who I believe may have run off to junior high or something, who read um, our passion- passage in uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 to 10. Uh, before we get to Galatians chapter 6, we've kind of got to understand a few things that took place uh, in Galatians ahead of time. And so the book of Galatians is a letter, or it's a letter of Galatians, Paul's epistle. All these words might be popping into your head, but essentially Paul, the Apostle Paul, had been there, had preached the gospel, had planted this church, and then is writing a letter back because they have been misled. They're beginning to believe lies, and he wants to correct them, encourage them, and get them back on the right foot. And so um, a lot of Paul's letters actually are quite systematic. Um, even, for example, uh, we could think of the book of Romans and many people will say that is like Paul's grand piece. Very systematic. One general idea, but many sub-points as he works all the way through it, right? Very systematic. You say the same thing about First and Second Corinthians, but you come to Galatians and it looks like he only has one big idea. And I, I really wish that my copy of the scripture didn't have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and all the, the letters in there because we could read it as one fluid comment about this issue that was taking place and what the solution will be. The big idea essentially is that a misunderstanding of the gospel is certain to create disharmony and enmity among the people of God. Enmity is a strong word. Enmity means to make enemies between the people of God. So how can that even be? And that's what we're looking at here. What's the big story? There were these leaders these Jewish leaders that were saying, if you want to be saved, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to be given new life and have your sin forgiven, then you need to put your faith in Jesus. But if you want to be really sure, then you also need to practice certain Jewish laws, primarily circumcision. Now you can imagine the type of uh, conversations that would be floating around here, because there were Jewish uh, people with Jewish heritage that had trusted in Jesus and been converted to become Christians, Christians right? Followers of the way. But there were also Gentiles. That are, those are people who have no uh, Jewish lineage or heritage who came to know Jesus. Now, the Gentiles more than likely were not circumcised. Now, could you imagine a bunch of grown men sitting around? And the idea is, well, if you really want to make sure you're saved... You've got to make sure that you trust in Jesus. Okay, Jews who trust Jesus, Gentiles who trust Jesus, but you've got to make sure that you're also circumcised. Excuse me? What now? And so there were these leaders that came in after Paul had left, and they began to spread these lies. And so Paul, in the beginning of the book, is very aggressive, actually. He says, who's bewitched you? He says, who's put a curse on you? Who's told you these lies? He says, I'm astonished that you would walk away so quickly from the gospel I first preached to you. He says, if I, or an angel, if anybody ever comes and preaches a different message than the gospel I've taught you, let them be a curse. Let the curse of God be upon them. You read this in the opening verses, like, hello. And so he's obviously very, I would use the word upset or enraged about this because he so desperately wants his people to know the true message of the gospel because of how that affects all of Christian community. What is the message of the gospel? As simply as I can put it, and I'm actually just ripping off a book title from somebody else. He, there's a book out there, and you can Google it, called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. I actually didn't read the book. The title seemed to be more than enough for me. It came up on Amazon. <laughs> came up on Amazon, you know, books other people have purchased at the same time, and I'm kind of on a book limitation right now. I'm not allowed to buy any more books for a while, my wife says. And so, anyways, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, and that's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Faith in Jesus alone is what makes us right with our Father in heaven. Faith in Jesus alone is what what enables us to be restored back to the people, the humanity that we were meant to be. That alone. So Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's how we experience the fullness of life that God has made us to have. But the message that was taking place in Galatians, the false teachers were saying Jesus plus circumcision equals everything. Now, to make matters worse, if you can believe it, To make matters worse is we've got this other apostle, and his name is Peter, and he's well known. Depending on the English translation you're using, it might refer to him as Cephas, as you go back and read through Galatians. But Cephas, Peter, we're talking about the same dude here. And so to make matters worse, when these Jewish teachers showed up, Peter started to get uh, a little worried, and he noticed that these were men who should have been held in high regard. And so what he was doing is he actually started to spend more time with the Jewish believers than with the Gentile believers. And so he began to basically show favoritism. And so again, the Gentiles are already saying, like, hold on a second, Paul, like this unbelievably strong Jewish leader who was converted came and preached the good news to us that we could be saved by faith and that we could be brought into the family of God. Not that Jewish lineage doesn't matter, it's important, but God has made a way to embrace all of humanity. And now Peter, this like super apostle is spending time with them. Maybe the the liars are right. Maybe the false teachers are right. And so it says in there, Paul says, this is why I came and I called Cephas out in front of all of you publicly. I came and said, Peter, what's wrong with you? You can't do this. Everything we know, you know, Peter, that it has nothing to do with any works you've ever done, any good thing you've ever done. You know it's not about your moral perfection. You know it's not about how well you've kept the law, but it's about Jesus and how, much, and how he's done that in our place. And by putting our faith in him, he's made us new. Peter, how could you do this? And then Paul says explicitly clear in chapter 2, verse 6, God does not show favoritism. I love it when the Bible is clear. We have to do, like, should we exegete that? Here's what it means. God does not show favoritism. What does that mean? There aren't any favorites for God. Okay, God doesn't show favoritism. So clear. And this is the whole point that Paul is trying to make throughout the entirety of this letter all of his writings essentially get back to this point and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, anyone who believes in him becomes one. Right? And so we have these pictures of one body, one community, one household and we're going to see one family because in Jesus' name, the playing field is level. Backstreet Boys, the wonderful, famous, mainline theologians, I don't care who you are, I don't care where you're from, I don't care what you've, where you, whatever it is. You probably know it better than me. All that heavy metal kind of washed the, the 90s pop out of my brain. <laughs> amen. <laughs> I'll, I hear that amen. We become one. And, and then he says this, and, and I believe we have this up on the slide in chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, I think this is a beautiful and very intriguing thing for the Apostle Paul to say to us. There's neither this nor that. There's neither this nor that. And, and really, I'm stepping in uh, around the conclusion, I believe, of a series on love and sex and relationships. And So what does Paul and Peter and circumcision and Galatians, Galatians and families, what does all this have to do with, with, with friendship and relationships and community? I actually think it has everything to do with it. Because Paul is saying here that there's something bigger and better than simple friendship. It's not that God has saved you and you guys can just hang out and play nice now, but you're actually in the same family. You're brothers and sisters. And for us to really understand this even better, we might have to rethink the way that we view relationships. I think that sometimes when we think of God, we think primarily of our relationship to God and not about our relationship with God. And there's something uh, nuanced about this that we really need to pay attention to. For example, if we consider an organizational chart, an org chart, at your place of work, I can figure out what your relation is to your boss. Your relationship is to your boss. So I could go into your HR office and I could say, can you please show me the org chart? And I'm sure they'd just unlock the filing cabinet and show me everything I wanted. Okay, just come along with me on this. And as I look at that, I might see your boss at the top, and I might see uh, an executive team or committee, depending on what your work structure is, and then we might see you over here. And so I can say, all right, you report to this person, and this person reports to that person. That shows me the way that you relate to your superiors, but it doesn't show me the way that you relate with your superiors. And this is important because you may have a fantastic relationship that's more than just a working relationship with your boss and your supervisors. Maybe you go out for drinks after work, or maybe you've had your families together, maybe you've time building relationship with one another you don't just give them a token Christmas gift but you actually give them something more heartfelt because there's meaning associated to that relationship but maybe your relationship is terrible maybe maybe they're they're a dictator and they don't really care about you they just care about outcomes and, and what's to what, what we're going to have brought in at the turn of the quarter or by the end of the fiscal year or whatever. Looking at an org chart doesn't tell me anything about your relationship with your boss. It just shows me the relationship to your boss. And when we think about our relationship to God and with God, we have to pay, be, we have to pay very particular attention to this because, yes, it's important that we understand our relationship to God is that he is creator and we are created. He rules and we serve. Absolutely. But it doesn't end there, and it can't end there, because Scripture shows us that it's about how we relate with God. The language that Paul is using in these verses would have actually been legal language. These are legal terms that would have uh, been used in, in court when they were working through an adoption. And Paul is using this language very specifically. By faith in Jesus, you've been adopted into the family of God. You become his sons and his daughters. You become heirs to his throne. Everything he ever had planned for Jesus, his one and only son, is now given to you as his children who've trusted in him and his plan for your life and for all of creation. Think about how heavy that is. Our relationship with God, what does that look like? I'd encourage you this week or maybe this afternoon, if it's raining again and uh, you can't get outside or whatever, you know, make a nice cup of tea and read Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 to 12. And you're going to see this picture of, of a father who's loving. This idea that, that Jesus is trying to explain how good our Father in heaven is to people using an earthly father example. And he says, you earthly fathers, if your son came and asked you for a loaf of bread, you wouldn't give him a rock, would you? No. If he came and asked you for a piece of fish, would you give them a snake head? Right? Or a snake? No. That would be terrifying. Maybe a funny joke if you got little kids. But really, the point Jesus is making is, we've got a loving Father who knows our needs and cares for us and gives us what we need. He t- he's tying this into relational language. We are able, we see even Paul saying this in Galatians, to refer to God in heaven as Abba, which is this intimate, close, relational term that we wouldn't use just for anybody, but for our Father in heaven, this beautiful name. And so this means that in Christ, by faith in Christ, we become siblings. Hi, siblings. It's already happened, but we're just meeting each other, like long-lost relatives, separated at birth maybe kind of idea. Right in, in the family of God, there's no org chart. There's no cliques. There's no, uh, there's no um, hierarchy. There's no good seats or cheap seats. There's close cheap seats and far seats. But there's no cheap seats and, and, and good seats. There's no high place or low place. There's no distinction. There's no difference in us. The playing field is level. When God looks at us, He sees His beloved child. And when He looks at you, He sees His beloved child. And when He looks at you, He sees His beloved child. And when He looks at me, He still sees His beloved child. As much as I may doubt that, sometimes. Now what does this mean? We're all the same? Are we just to become one big homogenous society and all wear the same color pants and shirts all the time? No. Please no. No, we don't just become a homogenous society. And you can actually use this same passage to make a huge case for the type of unity that can exist within a diverse group of people. Again, people from everywhere. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every corner of the earth. From there, someone who hears the gospel will respond, will trust in Jesus, and they will be brought into the family of God, and we will be siblings with them. There is unity and diversity. I actually think this is one of the strongest parts of our Christian witness, that you guys meet in a movie theater, and I meet in this, this, this building down on Shepherd Avenue, and that there are other churches in parts of the world that are meeting underground, hoping not to be figured out, and that there are other places in the world where they're in a building that has bullet holes all along the wall. I think that that diversity in, in Christian experience and church life actually gives us more street cred. It actually gives us more value. It actually gives us something more to work with as we encounter and interact with people of the world. And so, uh, yes, there's differences. We are different, but we're God's children. We're equal, but different. And the problem in Galatians, the problem that infects churches everywhere, is that a misunderstanding of the gospel is bound to create enmity and disharmony. So when we understand that the gospel is ultimately Jesus in our place, enabling us by faith to be brought into the family of God, the playing field is level. And man, is it better to be on a level playing field than always feeling like we're contending, competing with other people. And so our relationship with our Creator, with our Father, directly impacts our relationship with others. Think about this. We're fully, completely known by our Father in Heaven. And yet, He still loves us, accepts us, provides for us, enables us, allows us to experience grace upon grace upon grace. If that's true, and if you believe that's true, then why should there be any contest with any other Christian? We don't, we don't keep track. I mean, we don't walk around checking if anybody's circumcised or any other type of law that we make up, right? but but sometimes we in our head we say well you know maybe today i've got it a little bit better together this week and as you're catching up with your friends you're like that was a little rough right and we start to compete and these things start to slip in but if we're saved by grace through faith in jesus and what he's done for us where's the contest lie i don't want to ever feel better than my siblings my actual flesh and blood siblings i want what's best for them and so i celebrate them when things go well when things go wrong i get frustrated i say why are you making bad decisions sometimes i I really think that and say that, but ultimately I see the problems in their life and I don't want them to have those, those difficulties. I'm getting ahead of myself, I'll talk more about that in a minute. And so, what does it look like to be fully known? What does it look like to be naked and unashamed, the way we were designed, the way we were made, to be fully and completely known? God, uh, with Adam and Eve, creating them naked physically to demonstrate something that humans are to experience all across the board. Not just physically, but, but relationally and spiritually and emotionally and all of that. And we know that sex accomplishes a unique kind of intimacy uh, for For two people that are for, for heterosexual couples that are married to each other, we know that, that 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 demonstrates and displays a unique kind of intimacy. but does that mean that true uh, being known fully and completely that true intimacy is only achievable in the context of a marriage no it, it doesn't that 's not the only place it, it lives now now we know this our hypersexualized and pornified culture gives us every reason to believe that sex is actually the epitome of intimacy. This is the closest you can ever get to somebody, is by sleeping with them. it's possible to have intimacy without sex because we are primarily made to ha- be relational beings spiritually, emotionally, mentally before the physical ever happens. But what's happened is there's this separation. It's almost like this Gnostic spiritual thing where I'm going to separate my body from everything else. And I can do these things with my body, but I'm never actually going to give you access to the spirit, to the soul that's going on inside of me. And, and what's happened is there was a day, at least I'm, I'm sure there was a day, where emotional, spiritual, uh, nakedness and intimacy existed before physical nakedness came. But now we separate those things and say, I don't trust you, I've been hurt. I don't want to give you all of who I am on the inside. I don't want to give you all of my soul, but I'll give you my body and maybe that'll, that'll ward you off for a little while. What a thought, eh? And, and I work a lot with Generation Z, the upcoming and current generation, those who are born like 1993 to 2012, the largest current age demographic on the planet. And they're going to be running the pla- uh, running this place. when It's even hard for me to say because I still have a little bit of disbelief sometimes. Um, But I love them and I'm hopeful for them. And I know that good things will come, but they're infinitely connected to the world, but they're so insatiably disconnected from everyone else. They so badly want to be known Even though everything about them can be, they they just don't achieve that because they've been told and they've been taught, they've been raised to think that if I'm going to be known, I have to have sex with somebody. And that's just not true. Check out this quote. Preston Sprinkle wrote a book called Living in a Gray World, which I did read. And he says this. Being celibate does not mean you have to be lonely. I know a lot of married people who are terribly lonely. Just look at how many Christians have affairs. Marriage won't automatically solve your loneliness. I know some, lonely, some really lonely celibate people, but I also know some who are relationally fulfilled. How do they experience this? Through community. Humans can live without sex, what? But we can't live without love. We can't live without relationships and community, and we can have rich, vibrant, life-giving relationships without having sex with those we're in a relationship with. I think our society has elevated sex too much And has equated sex with love. But love is not the same as sex. And sex is not the same as love. I've experienced love and relational fulfillment apart from marriage and sex. And so we've been designed with a craving for community. We've been designed with this desire to be fully known to experience deep, intimacy and relationship with others and throughout all of history this has been marred and broken and confused and and tried to be made about something that it really isn't because we get hurt and we get defensive and we don't want to give other people things we don't want to tell them things about ourselves intimacy means defined uh, close familiarity and friendship but after looking at what the apostle paul has said friendship again is too weak of a word it's not enough we're not just friends. We're not just co-workers. We don't just sit on the same team. We don't just uh, sit around the same table and, and meet with each other. We don't just hang out around the same places. We're siblings. We're brothers and sisters. And there's something deeper and more meaningful in that relationship than there is with friends. Now, it's possible that some of you are saying, but hold on a minute. I don't have a good relationship with my flesh and blood brothers and sisters. I do have a, be- a good relationship, a more closeness a more close-knit relationship and intimacy with, uh, with, with friends in platonic relationships. So what gives there, right? And so I just try to paint this picture of what, what, what God as our Father looks like and how we are His, we're siblings as His children, right? And, and some of you might even say, well, I'm closer, more tightly knit to my church community, my Christian community, than I am to my flesh and blood siblings who aren't in Christ. And that actually kind of makes sense we are able to share something that is so much deeper, so much more penetrating, so much more real because of our union in Christ than the rest of the world could ever experience. And that's why I keep saying over and over, we have what the world wants. Are we showing it to them in a way that's beautiful, in a way that proves to them that they actually want it? And so practically speaking, because we took forever to get to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 to 10, practically speaking, what does it look like? Well, as it was read for us earlier, that's a picture of what this Christian community, siblings in the family of God, this is what it looks like. And so authentic Christian community looks like similarity instead of superiority. The gospel levels the playing field. It puts us on the same turf. We're not competing with each other. We're not contending with each other. There's no room in the kingdom of God for swagger, okay? Nobody can walk around saying, well, you know, you're welcome that I'm here this morning. You know, imagine you came into church and somebody said to you, we're so glad you're here. Welcome to church. And they're just like, you're welcome. Right? Like what? You should like, what? Hold on a minute. (laughs) Right? No, no, there's no room for swagger in the kingdom of God. I didn't save myself. You didn't save yourself. God saved us. Right? The playing field is absolutely level. We're free to be ourselves, knowing that our true identity is known by God and that he's actually given it to us. Christian community looks like authenticity instead of sameness. These are different. Authenticity means we can be who we truly are. He says, the Apostle Paul says in this passage, he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. God will not be mocked. You can't fool God. He already knows everything that's happening. So walk around living like you truly are, right? Uh, Tim Keller, a brilliant writer, says this, the one with the only opinion that matters looks at us and says that we are more precious to him than the most valuable of all jewels. I don't think a lot about jewels, even though there's a giant Spence diamond in the parking lot where when I was looking to engage my wife, we went and shopped and I freaked out for real, I think for the first time ever, being in a diamond store, realizing I'd have to buy one of these. But I don't really think about diamonds like at all. Um, But there's this idea that precious jewel, most valuable item, people will go far and wide. They will dig to the depths of the earth. They will, they will search uh, you know, every last square inch of the ocean to find these jewels. The one with the only opinion who matters looks at us and says, you're more precious to me than even that. And what he's done to save us is far greater than the efforts that are put in to find jewels. And so if you believe that, if we believe that as a Christian community, then again, there's no room for swagger. Instead of walking around, like we've got it all to put, all put together, we can walk around with a bit of a limp, which is how some of my teenagers walk around. We can walk around with a limp saying, you know what? I need Jesus just like you need Jesus. Hey, you want to go get some Jesus? Like, you want to do this together? Hey, you need I'll help you up that step because that leg's hurting and I'll get that down from the shelf because your arm's messed up or whatever, right? We can hobble together in authenticity because the one who knows us knows us and knows you. And I know it sounds risky, and it is. I'm really, truly exhausted of trying to put on a show. I'm really, I I really am exhausted of of the idea of believing the lie, even believing the lie, or thinking of the lie that I'd have to try and save myself. It makes me want to take a nap. I'm just exhausted by it. We can walk around knowing that God, He chose us, He brought us in, and we're all in this together. Christian community looks like restoration over reputation. Our purpose is to make our brothers and sisters in Christ look more beautiful day by day than they ever were before. A couple of years ago, uh, we were just married before we had any kids. We went on a road trip to Florida, my wife and I and my brother-in-law and his wife. And we went to Florida and somehow, I talked them into leaving Florida early to go to Washington DC for a couple of days. Don't know how I did this. If you ask my wife, she'll still say, one of the worst decisions uh, she's ever made. But for me, it was pretty great. So we're driving, we get to Washington, DC, and I had been taking this course on American history, so it was very relevant for me. We were there in the springtime, I think it was March break, and when we got there, the entire city was under construction. It was miserable. The big pool that sits between Lincoln and the Washington Monument, if any of you have been there, was just emptied of water and filled with bulldozers. There was dirt everywhere, there was scaffolding everywhere. I'm like, what on earth? That's why the hotel was cheap, and then I clicked, right? And so we got to this Jefferson monument and I've always been intrigued with Thomas Jefferson, this incredible leader who uh, read scripture, but just like scratched out and tore out the parts of the gospels that talked about Jesus doing anything miraculous. Didn't want to believe that Jesus was divine in any way. That was intriguing to me. And of course, when we got to to, to Jefferson's monument, like everything else, it was under construction. And I saw these workers up on scaffolding, wearing gloves and masks, and they were trying to restore Jefferson. They They were cleaning him up. But it seemed to me like they really wanted him to look better when they were done with him than before they started. And if you want to restore a a historic statue, an incredible, uh, for the American people at least, an incredible monument of their heritage, you don't go at it with a pickaxe and a sledgehammer and, and a grinder. These guys were getting up in his face with a cloth and they were cleaning these little crevices, right, as if they had these little toothbrushes to clean the brim of his coat. I remember thinking like, man, these guys are either paid a lot of money to do this or paid by the hour, maybe is why they're taking forever. <laughs> but no, I think they're actually just gently restoring Jefferson back to make him look better than he was before. Friends, brothers and sisters, that is the way that we are to treat our brothers and sisters with gentleness, with humility. We're limping together, we're in this together. So we don't we don't take out our brothers and sisters. We don't attack our brothers and sisters. Okay? And here comes the community to save. Everybody all right? Yeah. Okay. I'll just have a sip. And then... Uh, mobile church is beautiful. Everybody's okay there? Okay. We, um, there is a time for more intentional, more direct correction, but there's a proper way, biblically, to go about doing that. So we don't just come up to somebody and attack them and say, in the name of betterment, no, right? We restore them gently, carefully, like those workers were restoring Jefferson. The world wants what we have. They want this authentic community. And so let me give you a few practical takeaway thoughts before we begin to wrap up here. The first is a question that I actually want you to consider is, do you actually really want community like this? God has showed us what it looks like. God has by his spirit enabled us to live this out, but we have to make a decision. Do we want our community to look like this authentic place where you can come and be? When I showed up this morning and saw people everywhere in shorts, my heart was warmed as was the rest of my body. I'm like, why am I not in shorts? I feel weird preaching in shorts. I don't know if you have that, but anyways. But there was something about that that doesn't necessarily exist in my my church community. I'm not knocking them, but there's just something about come as you are, right? And everybody in shorts is like, okay, good. Didn't know, right? Do you actually want it? Do you actually want this type of community because it costs us something to have it? The second thing is we have to tell the story we're actually living. Again, this is back on this authenticity point. Donald Miller, who's a, a writer, he wrote this book called Scary Close. And, and in this book, he talks about a time when he had to go away uh, for an extended period for some, for some counseling, some rehab kind of stuff. And he was bunked up with a, a guy who was like a multiple black belt karate guy, super tough. And they'd spend their days in these counseling sessions and group therapy. And, and the karate guy would be like, ah, this is all mushy stuff. It's not any good for me. I don't actually need this. And it was just like that. And then one night they're sleeping and karate man gets up to go to the bathroom and when he goes to the bathroom he leaves the door open and the light shines on his bed and donald miller looks over and sees a teddy bear in his bed so karate man was not living on the outside his real true story so we've got to tell the story we're actually living because shared brokenness is the pathway to true authentic christian community How, how, how great do you feel or how how welcoming is it when people walk around talking about how put together their life is right you're like yeah okay i'm happy for you sibling But like, things are real tough for me right now. But you know that if you've ever shared something difficult in your life, that there's this immediate, hey, I've been there. I know what this is like. There's this actual physical, spiritual leaning in that takes place that's leaning into the intimacy of a Christian relationship. And I know that there's risk involved here because I've told people things and they've told others that they weren't supposed to. That doesn't mean it's not worth it. We have to decide, do we want it even though it's risky? We have to genuinely care for others by putting them ahead of ourselves. And so we go from loving others because we're commanded to doing that to actually liking them as we spend time and grow in relationship with them. Jesus says in in John 15, this this wonderful verse, that there's no greater version of love than a friend who would lay down his life for another. And as he said this, he was talking about how he would ultimately give his life for his disciples and for all of humanity. But the the, the call for us is that we die to self daily in order to serve others. We put our interests aside. We put our opinions. We put our main points aside. And we, we look for the greater good of the other person who's right in front of us. Number four, don't settle for surfacy relationships. Your brothers and sisters deserve something better than this the veneer that's probably peeling away in front of what's really going on behind the scenes. Number five, wrestle with this question. Are you the friend for others that you expect others to be for you? Are you the brother, the sister, the sibling that you are expecting others to be for you? And this is really about double standards and hypocrisy. And so I'm going to invite the band to come and I'm going to close in prayer. And as we're doing this closure, excuse me, I just want us to remember that the type of community we are shows the world what God is like. Are we a family that's, that's working through it? That's working it out? That's trusting in Jesus, our Lord? Are we giving them a beautiful picture of who God actually is? Or when they look at us, are they seeing something that's broken and that they don't actually want to be a part of? Church, I encourage you and myself, I challenge all of us really to be this type of community that God has enabled us to be. Let's pray. God in heaven, Father, thank you for what you've done, for what you're doing, for uniting us, that Jesus gave himself for us and that by our faith in him we become siblings adopted into your family. God, help us to be trusting you enough to trust others with our brokenness and our mess. To remember that our identity and our value and Our worth is found in who you say we are and not by what anyone else thinks. And so we don't have to worry about keeping up with the Joneses. We can just be who we truly are. Help us with that. God, I pray that Upper Room Community Church would be a beacon of light in all of Vaughan and even across York Region. Perhaps the world because of the way that they are relationally intimate with one another, trusting each other, loving each other, serving each other sacrificially. God, I pray that your will be done and that this would take place. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
0: Man, I just want to bless you, not with any words that I have, but from the God who made the first move in reconciliation with
1: us. I just want to bless you with courage to make the first move. For some, it may be reconciling a, a broken relationship and it's just gone way too long. I just want to bless you with the courage to make the first move. And instead of saying, how is this ever going to happen after you'll say, why did I wait so long? I want to bless you with courage to make the first move in a friendship and confiding in someone about something that you've been fighting alone. You have the courage to make the first move to someone, even if you're not sure, say, can I I talk to you about something? (laughs) And I just want to bless you with the experience and knowledge that God is continuing to make initiative in your life. He is moving towards you, and because of that, you have courage to move towards someone else. Would you receive that? Amen.